0: James sharing uh, the amazing gift uh, that God has given him uh, with us. I continue to be amazed at how he can, uh, he can write that and then memorize that and then present that. I, I told him after last night's service, the, the, when you started using all the names of the bottles of water in there, I mean, <laughs> that is just, that, that is creativity uh, that comes from God's Spirit. So, James, thank you for for sharing with us. Uh, Folks, we've got a lot to cover today. So we're going to just kind of dive into this uh, right away. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, uh, would you please open it up to Romans chapter 15? We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around us. Uh, For those of you who are at home, uh, the verses will also be uh, on your screen. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. And if you're able to stand in honor of God's word, I would humbly ask you to do so. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Now the passage that we just read through uh, deals with a a topic that is near and dear to to my heart and that is the topic of Christian unity. For the last 22 years I have devoted a a pretty significant part of my life uh, to two things when it comes to serving God The first and foremost is to uh, share with people that they can be reconciled with the God of the universe through Jesus Christ, and it's a process of, of repenting of our sins and receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's one of the primary things that I have devoted the last 22 years of my life to, And the second is to encourage those who have been reconciled to the God of the universe, that they have a responsibility, that we have a responsibility to be reconciled with one another so that we might joyously serve God and glorify him together. So these are the things which God has called me to do and which I've strived to do faithfully over the last 22 years. And it hasn't always been easy especially the second part. And as I was thinking about it uh, over the last couple of days, the, the first part, sharing the gospel with others, it, is not all that difficult. I mean, the, the gospel, the, the, the story of God it, is relatively straightforward. It can be broken up into, into four basic themes, uh, four, four movements. The, the first is creation, that, that the, the incredible, awesome, infinite God of the universe in his love Created all things, including the pinnacle of his creation, that would be you and me. And he gave our our our, our first mom and our first dad very clear instructions uh, that they were to love him and that they were to steward his creation. And, and it was beautiful. And we're told in God's word that everything that God created was good. But you don't have to go very far into uh, the book of Genesis. You get to the third chapter, and and the second movement of God's story occurs, and that's the fall, where Adam and Eve decided that they no longer wanted to serve God. They decided that they wanted to be God. And, And through the temptation of the evil one, they submitted to sin, and basically the wheels fell off and that sin not only separated them spiritually from God, but it also created a physical death, which would be passed down from generation to generation to generation, that all of us, we suffer the consequences of that original sin, that occurred during the fall. And that everything in our world that we see now that is bad, the the pain and the suffering and the injustice and the wickedness flowed from that original sin from Adam and Eve and it continues to be passed down from generation to generation. Fortunately though, you don't have to go very far in the Bible when the, the third movement occurs. And that's the idea of redemption. You see, God doing that almost immediately when Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness and, and God clothed them. And, and and to clothe them, he what? He clothed them with, with animal skins, which required what? Meant that, that, that something had to die to clothe them. And ultimately, that redemption comes in the most powerful way in the life of Jesus Christ, where the God of the universe sends his one and only son, Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, to this earth to live the life that we are unable to live and to die a death on a cross, uh, assuming on himself the full wrath of God, which he has against my sin and against your sin. And that he would die on the cross, that he would be buried in a grave. Three days later, that he would raise victorious over sin and death, so that all who repent of their sins and receive him as Lord and Savior might be redeemed from the power of sin, freed from the curse of death, and graciously welcomed into his eternal family. So you've got this whole idea, you have creation, fall, redemption, and then there's this beautiful thing that, that we are all waiting for one day, which you know, may, may happen in the next half hour. It may happen five years from now. And that's the whole idea of restoration, that there's going to come a day when Jesus will come back and we, when we least expect it, and he will redeem everything that sin and death has restored. And all who have trusted, him, trusted in Christ will eternally live with King Jesus in the new heaven and new earth, and all those who persist in rebellion will be condemned to eternal death. That's what I've spent the last 22 years sharing with people. And communicating that that great truth has been relatively easy to do because I know that I'm responsible for the communicating part. God is responsible for the transforming part. It's God who has to, to draw people to himself. It's God who has to move to open up people's eyes and ears so that they might hear the gospel. And it's God who ultimately empowers them to repent and believe. And so as I considered this, I thought, that that has not been that hard. But the second part has proven itself to be extremely difficult. Because once people are reconciled with God, sometimes they don't desire to be reconciled to one another. Christian unity is a challenge. Now, in order to, to talk about Christian unity today, I, I want to define it because the term unity and, and, and reconciliation and all these other things have been co-opted by our culture and have been twisted. So uh, I went and did a, a little bit of research. I came across a, a great article on the Christian Coalition website by a, a young woman by the name of uh, <coughs> uh, Quiana Aragon. And uh, she defines Christian unity in this way. She says, Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of differing ethnicities, backgrounds, and social classes into one family or one body by faith in Christ. And she continues and she says, it's the God's Holy Spirit who unites us through the truth of God's word and through a shared mission and and brotherly and sisterly affection and service and reconciliation with one another, that's Christian unity. That we share a a common truth and a common mission and a common uh, uh, affection and service and a common reconciliation. That's Christian unity. Let me tell you what Christian unity is not, though. Christian unity is not uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that we have to give up our unique gifts or abilities or personal preferences or life experiences or genders or age or ethnic or cultural heritages. Because any call to unity that ignores our differences or demands blind allegiance isn't unity. It's called assimilation. Secondly, Christian unity is never devoid of justice. Christian unity doesn't sweep evil under the rug so that we can all just get along. Christian unity never pushes back against critique, nor does it dismiss conflict in the name of protecting unity while others suffer. But finally, this is the one thing that I discovered over the last couple of weeks, which you figure I would've figured out maybe a lot sooner. But Christian unity is not a goal to be obtained, but rather it is a byproduct of something far greater. And that greater thing is Christ. When we come together as Christian brothers and sisters and we passionately pursue Jesus and humbly obey his commands, At the end of that journey, we find unity. And sadly, many people pursue unity simply for unity's sake. And in the process, they're forced to accept all kinds of ungodly behaviors and embrace all kinds of unbiblical beliefs just to maintain some kind of weak and false and impotent peace. So if Christian unity is a byproduct, what are the behaviors or the convictions that that have to happen in our lives for the byproduct to ultimately occur? And I believe in this passage that we've just read, we're gonna gonna find four convictions, four behaviors, that, that ultimately, if we live them out, they will result in us living in Christian unity. I'll give them to you up front, and then we'll slowly make our, well, probably quickly make our way through them. So first of all, unity results when Christ followers have a common love for God's people. It results when we have a common dependence on God's Son, a common submission to God's Word, and a common commitment to God's glory. Let me say that again. Unity results when Christ's followers have a common love for God's people, a common dependence on God's Son, a common submission to God's word, and a common commitment to God's glory. So let's work our way through this. Look again at verse one. This is what it says. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For the past two weeks, uh, Pastor Ben and, and Mike Bongo have been, uh, as they worked through chapter 14, they, they've been uh, talking about this whole idea that there are strong Christians out there and there are weak Christians out there. And they explained that, that these two terms aren't, aren't designed to show uh, someone's uh, worth or value or someone's lack of worth or value, but rather they were being used to identify two different groups of people who existed in the Roman church who had different perspectives on personal convictions and Christian liberty. The strong were were those who who understood that, that Jesus had given them freedom from the ceremonial uh, Walls of the Old Testament. They realized that they were no longer tied. Uh two laws that said what could and couldn't be eaten or what days needed to be celebrated or not be celebrated. And then the weak Christians, they're also Christians, but they hadn't fully grasped the freedom that Jesus had provided them. And as such, they continued to observe these ceremonial laws. They considered to continue to decide, hey, I'm going to eat this and not eat that. We're going to celebrate this day or not celebrate that day. And it created a disunity between those two in the church. Now here we are again, we're in the beginning of chapter 15, and once again, we're talking about strong Christians and weak Christians, and as I was uh, preparing the message, I was considering how do I explain to a 21st century culture what it looks like to be a strong Christian in this culture, and what it looks like to be a weak Christian in this culture. But as I pondered that, I realized that doing that would not necessarily be helpful because identifying who is a strong Christian and who is a weak Christian is not Paul's point. The point Paul is trying to get across is that if we are Christians who consider ourselves to be strong, then we need to figure out how in the world do we bear with the failings, our perceived failings, of our fellow Christian brothers and sisters who we consider To be weak. So the obvious question becomes what does this word bear mean? Does it it mean that, that, that I, as a strong Christian, need to tolerate, put up with, deal with those who are weak Christians? Well, to bear doesn't mean that. What to bear means in this context is that as strong Christians, we are to joyfully and lovingly come alongside those who we consider to be weak and take upon ourselves that which burdens them. And it's the exact kind of bearing that the Apostle Paul talks in in Galatians chapter 6 when he says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. You see, to to bear with someone means to come alongside of them and help them in their struggles. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to agree with their behavior. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to uh, agree with their particular beliefs. But what it does mean is that we're to engage with them, that we're to care for them, that we're not to look down at our nose at them or or to make fun at them behind their backs. We're to love them in the manner that Jesus has loved us. And at the same time, Paul calls us to refrain from pleasing ourselves and instead please our neighbor for their good and to build them up. Now, it is painfully obvious that our natural inclination is to please ourselves. That's the way that that we come into the world. We don't have to teach our kids to be selfish. We don't need to teach our kids to to look out for themselves. They they come prepackaged as selfish little, self-centered crumb crunchers. And they grow up into selfish, self-centered Adults. And unless something changes about us, unless God's Spirit begins to work inside of us, that's how we ultimately go through our lives. We're number one, we're the most important. And we're very good at living in that which is natural. But the reality is this as Christians, we are not called to to live in the natural. We're called to, to actually live in the supernatural. And we're able to do that. We're able to live in the supernatural. Why? Because at the moment that we received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God deposited his Holy Spirit inside of us. The very power that raised God's Son, Jesus, from the dead has been placed inside of every one of us so that we don't have to live in the natural, that we can actually live in the supernatural. And one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is Romans, or Glac- Philippians chapter two. I love them all. <laughs> Philippians two, verse three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, when, when we humble ourselves, When when we consider others better than ourselves, when we put the interests of others ahead of ourselves, that's when everything changes. Over these last 22 years, I can't even count how many broken relationships that I have dealt with. Where people come come into my office, uh, be it a husband and wife, maybe a mom and a kid, uh, perhaps a brother and a sister, uh, maybe just two friends, and, and they just can't seem to get along. They, 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 they have both contributed at, at some level, maybe one at a higher level than the other level, to the problems that they've dealt with, and, and they're all self-centered. And, and, and my question always is this. When is one of you going to decide to behave like Jesus? because we are not fixing this until that happens. One of you is going to have to decide that I'm going to behave like Jesus regardless of what the other person does. And when that occurs, that's when the healing starts. Doesn't always work. Because sometimes the other person is so hard-hearted that, that, that even though the, the one is behaving like Jesus, the other one is so hard that the relationship falls apart. But if a relationship is going to work, it always works what? When, when, when one person considers the other better than themselves and the other person considers that person better than themselves. And when you do those two things, your relationships will last, but the moment that we decide that, no, my needs are more important, that's when the wheels fall off. Now, folks, we know this is true. We know Philippians 2 is true. Why? Because we see it here all of the time, living out Philippians 2, 2 through 4, it's what allows those in our church family who are rich, those who are poor, and those who are in between, to get along with one another. It's how people of color and who people who are white are able to get along in this place. How we can get along if, regardless of whether we're a Republican, a Democrat, an Independent, a, a Green Party, or whatever parties are out there anymore. Whether you got a PhD or or a high school, uh, you're a high school dropout. Maybe you run marathons. Others are in wheelchairs here those who love southern gospel or love hymns or love hip-hop or love hill song, we all figure out how to work together and to serve together and to live together and to glorify God together in this place. And when you and I have a common love for other Christians, folks, unity is the byproduct. Now, there's a second conviction or behavior That produces unity. And it is a common dependence on God's Son. Look at verse 3 of 15. For Christ did not please himself, but as it was written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, in order to reinforce his point about pleasing uh, one's neighbor instead of pleasing oneself, Paul points out that Jesus did the, ver, that very thing for us. And what he uses is he uses a verse that comes out of Psalm 69, uh, which says this in verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. Now these were the words of King David. King David was talking about how, how he was zealous for, for God and zealous for for God's word and, and the people were angry and the people were, were angry at God and because they were angry at God, they were, they were throwing uh, reproaches not just against God but ultimately on the king. And what Paul is doing is he's applying this Old Testament passage to Jesus and what he is saying is that Jesus was willing to be mocked, arrested, tortured and killed by those who were God's enemy on our behalf. Jesus just didn't do that randomly. He did it for a purpose because he had to satisfy God's wrath against our sin. Listen to the amazing words of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus sacrificed for us so that we might live. And when it comes to salvation, there's no question who's the weak Christian. We are all the weak Christian because we bring absolutely nothing to the table. In reality, we we actually bring a lot to the table. We we actually bring a a boatload of of sin to the table, so much sin that, that we're completely incapable of saving ourselves. And as such, you and I are utterly dependent upon Jesus, the strong to bear with our failings who are the weak. And we don't need Jesus to merely tolerate us. We need him to rescue us for our good. And we need him to build us up. And when we recognize that, when we recognize our complete dependence on Jesus, that we are the weak, it puts everything in perspective. We suddenly discover we are not all that we think we are. And when it comes to justifying ourselves, making ourselves right before the God of the universe through our own power, we're the weak, just like everybody else. We can't get to God on our own, We're incapable of earning our salvation. We need someone, and that someone is Jesus, to do it. And when we realize that we're in the same boat as every other Christian, that we are utterly dependent on Jesus, all of a sudden, that which divides us, it begins to to fade away. All those secondary theological arguments that, that people spend so much time Jawing with one another about when we realize that we are all in the same boat, suddenly those arguments don't seem nearly as important. That insensitive statement that was made in our presence, which most probably more times than not was done out of ignorance than intentionality, but sometimes it's intentional when we realize our deep needs, suddenly that seems less hurtful. The jealousy that we have towards another person's gifting begins to morph into appreciation. The pride that we all have is eclipsed by the realization that we are as desperate as the person that we're sitting next to. And in the process, because we all share a common dependence on God's Son. Unity happens. So this is what we have so far. Unity is the byproduct of a common love for others and a common love for Jesus. But it also comes from a common submission to God's Word. Look at verse 4. Paul says this, for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of scripture, we might have hope. So what Paul has just done is, as he has quoted an Old Testament passage from Psalm 69. And immediately after Quoting that, he, he, he kind of steps away from his primary train of thought. He has a, a new thought that just kind of pops into his mind, perhaps, and he reminds his readers and he reminds us that the Bible, in its entirety, as is applicable today as when it was first written, every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, every verse of the Bible, every word of the Bible has been intentionally put there, recorded over time, for you and I, for our instruction. It is not some ancient, dusty book whose purpose is to be studied by a bunch of crusty historians in some ivory tower. Nor is it uh, to be studied by a bunch of cranky theologians in some musty library on some seminary campus. No, it's ultimately, it's written for us It's there. It was designed so that we could be understood. It could be understood. There's no secret Bible code. You don't need a PhD. All you need is a heart that wants to learn. And and this thing, which happens to be alive, will speak to us. All of it is in here so that we might understand. And when we don't understand, what do we do? We come together in humility to figure out what it ultimately says it's written for people who struggle with sin who want to know and do the right thing who desire to help others and not hurt others listen to the words of 2 Timothy all scripture is breathed out and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness Why? so that a man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work we need this We can't make our decisions based on what the world says. What the world says is completely contrary to this. You read this stuff. It's like love your enemy. The world's like, are you kidding me? But this speaks to our hearts. We need to study it and meditate on it. We need to memorize parts of it. Because when we do, something wonderful happens. God completes us. And he makes us for every good work, but he does something else. Paul tells us that he uses it to encourage us and to help us endure in the midst of struggle. You see, when we're strong, it's the scripture's encouragement and endurance that helps us come alongside the weak and bear with them. And when we're weak, it's the encouragement and endurance of the scripture that allows us to receive the help from the strong with thankful hearts and not resentful hearts. And all of this produces hope. And isn't that what people are looking for? In the last 22 years, that's the one thing that, that has been the common thing from every person that I've ever talked to. They want hope. They want hope in the relationship. They want hope in their workplace. They want hope in... in, in, in What's going on between husband and wife, mom and dad, parents and kids, for our community, our coworkers, our church family. They want hope for the future. And all of this flows what when there is a common submission to the word of God. And when we do that, when we submit to this, unity follows. <clears throat> and this brings us to the final conviction final conviction or behavior that brings unity is a common commitment to God's glory verses 5 and 6 may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when uh The pandemic was going on in in its, you know, I guess height, whatever, towards the end of 2020. Uh, Kathy and I, we uh, traveled with our daughter, Nicole, to a a wedding. I think it was held in, I think, November, if I'm not mistaken, and it was outside. Uh, We were in a tent. There were no sides on the tent. They had put heaters in there in a, a vain attempt to try to keep people warm, and uh, it was the uh, wedding of, uh, we have dear friends, Tom and Janice Moser. They've been friends of ours since we lived out in Southern California in the, in the late 80s. And, and their daughter, Kendra, uh, was born right around the same time as my son, Mike, was born. And, and we've just been just long friends since then. And, and so Kendra was, was getting married, and, and I had no role in the wedding. Uh, I, I, didn't have to, you know, I, I, didn't have to officiate it. I didn't have to come up and do a prayer. I didn't have to do a little blessing at the end of the service or anything like that. So I could just be there and relax, which was, was kind of a nice thing, but I've got this problem and here's my problem. Uh, during these last two decades, I've done a lot of weddings and I have been refining them over and over and over again. So I've used the same template basically, but it, it gets humbly, it gets better and better as it goes. And so I feel like I do, in all humility, a pretty good job when I do a wedding. So when I go and I uh, just participate in a wedding, it is very challenging for me to not critique the pastor and compare it to mine, because, of course, I love when other pastors come and they critique me, right? I don't like that, but anyhow, uh, so we're in, you know, this wedding, and, and you know, Kathy knows me, and there have been plenty of weddings where I, like, lean over, and I'm like, ah, yeah, this is not very good, and she, like, rub, hits me in the side, or She gives me like that ugly eye look that I always tell her like, hey, if you keep looking at me that way, it's going to stay on your face kind of thing, you know. But at this particular wedding, I was blown away. The pastor's message was not extremely long. It wasn't very fancy. It was based on only two verses of the Bible, verses that I probably, I'm certain I had read before, but they had never touched my heart like the way that they touched my heart that night. And you and I just read those two verses. You see, I was blown away by the simplicity and the power of what the Apostle Paul said shared. You see, in the midst of everything that he has just talked about, really since chapter 12, and particularly since chapter 14, where he's talking about the strong and the weak and disputable matters and unity and hope, in the midst of all of this really serious stuff, he just stops and he breaks out in prayer. Because that's what these two verses are. They are a prayer. And Paul knows that unity is a supernatural thing. It can't be created. It can only be given to us by God. And God gives it to us for two purposes, secondarily, he gives it to us so that we might be blessed. But primarily, he gives it to us so that he might be glorified. You see, when we gather together as one body for the primary purpose of bringing glory and glory to God alone, when we put aside our preferences, when we consider others to be better than ourselves, when we lift up the weak, and don't resent the strong, when we humbly stand firm on God's word, not backing down, but not rubbing it in the face of those who might be our adversaries, when Jesus means more to us than anything else in the world, God is glorified. And when God is glorified, and we come together to glorify God, unity is what happens. It's not a goal to be achieved. It is a gift to be received. Now, Evan gave us a little picture of an attempt at demonstrating our unity in the process of glorifying God. Over the, the last several years, the last 22 years, one of the hallmarks of living water from the very beginning has been our commitment to bless our community. From the very beginning, we, 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 we made it a point that, that we, we would never make anyone pay for anything that we did. So if we did some kind of outreach and we were doing something, we, we wouldn't try to, to raise money from it. We wouldn't sell subs or, or anything like that. We would just simply give away the love of God. And in the early days, we, we did that by, by giving away free bottles of water. This was 22 years ago. It was before really, I don't know of a lot of churches around here that were, were doing those types of things. And so we would go to community festivals. We would go to uh, big uh, down in Shypok, along the river, they in June, July, they have a, a huge yard sale. Thousands of people come. We're, we're giving away water. As a matter of fact, this, is, this just came to my mind. Uh, we're giving away this water, and uh, the next day, or well, probably it took a couple days because of the mail, I get a letter in the mail from a pastor of a church who was there selling water. And he was furious with us because we were giving away water and, and, and we, had, we had impinged on their fundraiser to help their church out. So the question is, how do you deal with that, right? So so here's how I dealt with it. I, I got with our, our small group, but you know, there was there were there were eight families that were part of our core group at that time. We hadn't even started having out you know church services yet. And we all got together and we're like, well, we, we gave out about 400 bottles of water, so we probably took about $400 of cash from this guy's church. And so we decided, we had no money as it was, but we wrote him a $400 check and said, dude, we weren't trying to, to mess you up. You know, we were just trying to bless people, you know? And, and, and we've been doing that kind of stuff. Uh, we, we, would, we gave away water in the Harrisburg Mall when the Harrisburg Mall used to be the Harrisburg Mall. Uh, you know, we would wash cars for, for free and not take any money. As we, we grew, we did community coffee houses and festivals, and, and you guys have been parts of that. Uh, over the years, we, we've given away tons, literally tons and tons of food in our food pantry, and we fixed countless cars in our car repair ministry, and we pour tens of thousands of dollars of relief into our community every year. But there's one thing that we have never, ever done. And that was to shut down things and go as one body and just serve, not designed to bring a single person to living water. Because the reality, all of these things that we have done in the past, while, while they're designed for the community and, and while they're designed to be altruistic, there, there is an underlying thing there, especially in the early days, was what? We're trying to get our name out. We're trying to get people to come to Living Water. But not next Saturday, but the following Saturday, we're going to do something that's not designed to get a single person to come to Living Water. We're simply going to go to, uh, into our community. We're going to work with Wild Heart Ministries, which is down on the hill, and, and a number of other churches, and we're just going to serve. And so we're, we're, we're not having a Saturday night service two weeks from now, and uh, we're not going to have a 9 o'clock service on uh, Sunday morning two weeks from now. We're not going to have an 11 o'clock service on Sunday two weeks from now because we're go- all going to come together, and we're going to serve on Saturday. That may be for some of us, might be for an hour. For some of us, it might be for the whole day. It's been designed so that uh, young kids can participate in It So if you've got a, you know, a kindergartner, they should be able to do it as, as much as you've got a, a senior citizen. We're gonna, we've, Mike Bongo's worked all of this stuff out. Uh, there's a, a website up there. You go out to Living Waters website slash service. You can register online. And so that's gonna happen on Saturday. And then what we're gonna do on Sunday morning we are gonna have a service. We're gonna have a 10 o'clock service. So one that's not comfortable for the six o'clock on Saturday night people, one that's not comfortable for you nine o'clockers, and one that's not comfortable for our 11 o'clockers. We're gonna come together at 10 o'clock, and the service is gonna be an hour, and and all 600, 700 of us are gonna come and fill this room that seats 500 people. That's the game plan. Because I was thinking like, hey, we need to get more seats, but then I was thinking like, you know, when there were five loaves and two fishes, they didn't try to get more, more fishes and loaves. They just went with, Jesus could spread it out. So we're gonna figure it out how to make that happen here. But we're gonna, we're gonna just go into our community and we are going to, to serve together. That's the game plan. It's nothing super fancy. It's just like, how can we do this completely as a church family with, with nothing for living water to get anything out of at all, other than showing that we love others, we love God, we love his word, and we desire to glorify him. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are good. Thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, the truth of your word. And Father, thank you for uh, this unity that Jesus prayed for in in, in John 17. He prayed that we might be one as he and you are one, Father. So God, do that in the midst of our church family. Lord, we know that we're gonna make mistakes, that we're gonna hurt one another's feelings. Help us, Heavenly Father, to be wildly kind and generous and forgiving. Lord, bring us together together people from every different ethnicity from every different background from every different economic status and ability lord god bring us together so that you might be glorified in the process that we might be blessed and now lord as we uh, take this offering father thank you for for those who give online thank you for those who give through the mail for those who give in person Lord, I pray for those who desire to give but find themselves in difficult financial situations. Pray, Heavenly Father, that you might, uh, Lord, provide means for them to be able to be uh, generous for it is a great joy uh, to give to your work. And Lord, help this church to be wise stewards of these resources. Lord, help us never to squander them, never to use them for our own glory, but for your glory alone. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said.